Peter gave us the mandate, always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in you. For the questions that come, he said, be prepared to give an answer, an apologia. That's where the word apologetics comes from. Be prepared to give an answer. Your being here and studying and laboring through these lectures and these discussions, that's preparation. You're not going to remember everything. I, 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 I don't remember everything I've preached. How in the world are you going to remember it? But hopefully you'll learn new ways of thinking, new ways of turning the diamond to look at every facet of it and see more depths of beauty and brilliance in it. The key is not to remember everything you've heard. I certainly haven't. My life has not been changed by books. My life has been changed by sentences. Let me say that again. My life has not been changed by books. It's been changed by sentences within those books. A phrase, a paragraph, something that jumped out. So... I don't expect you to, to get all of these arguments nailed down like clockwork, but as you grow in this study, if you pursue this discipline, if you sense a calling by the Holy Spirit to get deeper into it, go for it. The resources are there. Many happen to be on my shelf in my library. Uh, the women are meeting there right now, and I have to move piles of stuff because I, I, you know, I'm out of space. But anyway, let's dive in. It, does everybody have an outline? Anybody not have an outline? Josh does not have an outline. Would you be so kind as to share with Colby? I'm told he showered and shaved and used deodorant. Great. All right. The outline in front of you, you've seen this before, but we always have new people coming, and especially with that little plug on Christmas Eve, <laughs> I thought it might be good to step back and look at the whole forest for a moment before we dive in at one of the trees. We often miss the forest for the trees, and I don't want to do that. Every time we come to a new topic, I want to make sure we pull back and look at the macro view before diving in. And what you have here on the, the, um, the, the top page of your outline is the apologetics outline. This is basically the entire discipline of apologetics, simplified a little bit, and reduced to outline form. And you'll see here there are two Roman numerals. In other words, we're dividing the entire discipline of apologetics into two halves. The first half being offensive or positive apologetics. The second half, defensive or negative apologetics. If you take this whole vast branch of theology called apologetics and reduce it down to its two simplest parts, you, you basically have offensive and defensive apologetics. Now, what do we mean by that? Offensive, think of offense in a football game or a baseball game or whatever. You're going on the attack. In the, and when I say attack, I don't mean, you know, fisticuffs. We're Christians here, supposedly filled with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. This is not a fisticuffs. We're making arguments, but we're not being argumentative. But when we say here uh, offensive apologetics or a positive case, we're, we're building a positive case for why it is credible to believe in Christianity. 
we're giving the affirmative case for why it is credible and reasonable to come to the conclusion Jesus is Lord. And notice that word is, I almost slipped up, it's not offensive, it's offensive. (laughs) Okay, so in offensive apologetics, we're building the positive case as to why it's credible and reasonable to believe in Jesus as Lord and take the Bible as authoritative. The second half, Roman numeral two, their defensive or negative apologetics, it's just the opposite. We're actually in defensive apologetics responding to objections that are thrown at us by unbelievers. And there are quite a few arguments. I've categorized them here. We'll take a look at them in a moment. But in defense of apologetics, we're trying to respond intelligently, credibly, authentically to the cultured despisers of the faith. Or sometimes they're not so cultured. Christopher Hitchens is a well-known, famous atheist today who's very blunt and very mouthy and very irreverent. And he's one of the category we would call new atheists. Um, So I wouldn't call him a cultured despiser of the faith. He's just a pit bull. And he's a rabid anti-theist. That is, he doesn't believe in God and doesn't think you should either. When he writes his books, what do we do? Get nervous? Uh, Give up our faith? Or do we analyze line by line, argument by argument, what he is objecting to? That's what you do in defensive apologetics. Now, let's unpack these two halves a little bit further, especially for those who are kind of newer, and this might be your first night. But before I go on, does that make sense to you? Are you following me so far? We've got offensive and defensive apologetics. You know, when you have the football, you're on offense. When the other team has the football, you're on defense. Same thing in apologetics, all right? When Christopher Hitchens has the football, we're on the defensive. (laughs) When, When we're in the pulpit, we've got the football. He's on the defensive, all right? Okay, now let's break that down a little bit further. When it comes to offensive or positive apologetics, there are really three basic subcategories of positive apologetics. Three classifications within positive apologetics, and they are classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, and presuppositional apologetics. Classical, evidential, and presuppositional. In other words, when we're building our case we're going to be engaged in one of those three types of apologetics. Classical, evidential, or presuppositional. Now, for the first four months of this study, we have spent our time on that first grouping there, classical apologetics, which is uh, another name for it is natural theology. Some theologians would call it natural theology. A way to think of classical apologetics is basically this. Appeal is made to general revelation, not specific revelation, but but general revelation. And what I mean by that, let me say it a whole lot simpler. When it comes to classical apologetics, you don't use the Bible. What you use is what's around you. 
what God has given. And so for the first four months of our study, for those who've endured, <laughs> we have actually, we haven't quoted chapter and verse all that much. Basically, we have looked at science, biology, astronomy, physics. We've looked at philosophy. We haven't cracked the book. Why in the world would we do that? Well, because the book itself says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Night after night, they pour forth speech. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 said that the reality of God should be known by everyone just by looking at what's been created. Created. In other words, intuitively, we should have a sense, an inner sense that God exists because look at everything around us. He's real. He must be real. In fact, Paul is so adamant that that inner sense is trustworthy that he says all of humanity is held responsible for it. He goes on in Romans chapter 1 to say, if you deny the existence of God, you have denied not only specific revelation that God has given in his word, you have denied general revelation. And now, how many of us, how many were with us for that uh, classical apologetic study? It wasn't easy, was it? I mean, we, we were dealing with subjects that you haven't probably considered since you were in high school. Right? Amen? And that's kind of tough. But you endured. I, I think it's going to get a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible. But we talked about the cosmological argument. The argument that says uh, God must exist because, well, here we are. There's got to be a cause. Every effect has a cause. Well, we're looking at this effect called the universe. There must be a cause behind it. That cause is God. And then we looked at the teleological argument, which is basically the argument from design or better, it's the argument from fine-tuning, meaning that this universe and specifically this planet is so fine-tuned to sustain human life as we know it that if some of the cosmological constants and biological constants were off by just a little bit, we could not survive. We would not be here. In other words, this universe displays elements of design. And if there's design here, there must be a designer behind it. Pelley's famous um, little parable, if, if you're walking through a desert and you stumble upon a watch, and you, you say, well, obviously, behind that watch that you found is a watchmaker. That's the teleological argument. And then we moved to the anthropological argument or the moral argument, as it's more commonly known, the argument from morality. You and I and everybody else on the planet have an inner sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. If I walk up to Michelle Hilbert and just for no reason slap her across the face, I'm not going to do it, but if I did, what would you think of me? You've done something wrong. How do you know? Have you ever asked, how do you know that? Conscience. You got a Jiminy Cricket inside, huh? Or as the Bible would say, Romans 1 and the Old Testament actually alludes to this, the law written on the heart. Every human being made in the image of God. 
How do you know right from wrong? What is the dividing line by which you distinguish good from evil? What is that and what is that line and where did it come from? Call it conscience, call it Jiminy Cricket, call it the moral law, as some do. But doesn't the moral law imply a moral lawgiver? So we looked at, now there's more to that argument, obviously, but that's just to summarize. And then we took a look at this thing called the ontological argument and its philosophical spin-offs which argues for the existence of God from the concept of God alone. And we went all the way back to the 11th century, uh, 10th century and 11th century Anselm who, who uh, popularized this argument and then Aquinas picked it up and ran with it, actually sharpened it. And without getting into all of that, it's basically saying that if something exists, if you can get people this far, if something exists, you, you've won half the battle. Because the existence of something, if there's something rather than nothing, well, then there, that something had to come from somewhere and someone. And I would add, for some reason. Now, those were the four basic arguments we used. Then we took a couple weeks just because of our seasonal break. And we looked at some stuff involving Christmas. But we spent the first four months on classical apologetics. Didn't crack the Bible just looked at what was around us. Now, my question to you, and I think I have some questions on the next page. Uh, actually, no, that, I'm getting ahead of myself. For those of you who, who were here, which of those arguments did you think was the most persuasive? Or which one did you connect with the most? Which one did you listen to and say, ah, that, that, one, that one can't be refuted? Anyway, Liz? The anthropolo or the moral argument, okay. Anyone else? Yeah, Jan. Where did that sense come from? Okay, in the moral argument. Even, even Immanuel Kant said, there are two things that cause me great wonder. The starry host above and the moral law within. He was a churchman. His, his father, I think, was a Lutheran uh, pastor. Uh, interesting, interesting. Any others? You're, you have a favorite. Okay, and Carolyn is saying the teleological argument is, is intriguing to her because how could this be chance? We did some probability calculations, if you remember. Basically, there are if you look at this at a terrestrial level, there are 35 cosmological dials, let's call them, and they ha all have to be set just right. I mean, uh, the proton to electron ratio, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the expansion rate of the universe, all of those constants, they, to get any one of them set at just the right spot is improbable. But to get all 35 of them set at just the right spot to sustain life in, the uni in this universe, is it, it raises your eyebrows. Your word was intriguing. Yes, very intriguing and very hard to refute. That's the terrestrial level. When you look at a molecular level and you look at how amino acids come together to form proteins and the improbability that that could happen by chance and form life is astronomically impossible. 
And when you actually do a probabilistic calculation, in other words, when you determine, okay, what are the real chances that this could happen? The conclusion is chance doesn't have a chance. <laughs> That's the conclusion. Any others? Uh, anybody, anybody? Almost nobody connects with the ontological argument. That's just like pure abstract uh, philosophy. But I, I love it. I, I'm just because I'm a geek. Yeah. Let, let, just hold your thought. I, I want you all, what is the date? It's January, January 5th, 2011. This dear gentleman said that the ontological argument is the simplest. Did, did you hear that? Mark it down, mark it down. God bless you. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Yeah. It didn't always exist. You'd say something had to cause it. So it's, it's the hardest to grasp, but once you grasp it, it is pretty simple. After you get it, it's like, oh, duh. In fact, I like how you phrased that there, cause and effect. I've often referred to the ontological argument as the cosmological argument of the mind. I like how you said that. Okay, there was another hand. Yeah. Uh, I ontological. Yeah. Yeah. Where you stand, just because I guess of knowledge of certain things, but when I walked out of here after that argument, I was like, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's the one. It's interesting to hear the different perspectives. Some people, when it comes to the ontological argument, they're like, I can't even say ontological. I don't want to say ontological. <laughs> and then others are like, Wow, got that one, and it, and it just clicked. And if, I, if you remember, I shared, it took me about six years to get it. <laughs> so if you got it in one night, God bless you. This is a historic night at Fleetwood Bible Church. Revival is on its way. <laughs> what was that? I, I, no, no. I, I, I think it was the video clips, I, quite honestly. Any others? Uh, the, um, there's, there's only four, really, that we presented, but any other thoughts here? Okay, classical apologetics, we're just looking around. We're not even cracking the Bible. Now, the second one, evidential apologetics, special revelation. Uh, you see that in parentheses. This is where we start using the Bible. Okay, we've played the atheist's game on their turf. We, 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 we essentially took, you know, one of the nicknames of the Bible is sword, right? The sword of the spirit. We've essentially taken the sword out and we've set it aside and said, okay, the fight is still on. And remember, my conclusion, my own personal conclusion is after you do classical apologetics, the needle is at least 50-50. 50-50, at least 50-50. Now, I would say it's a lot more in the direction of theism because the Bible says so. But at least 50-50. And that's having taken the sword out and thrown it away and fought on their grounds. And I think it, it does take some courage to do that. How many times you've read something by an atheist and thought, that's a good argument, and it kind of rattles your teeth and your faith gets jolted a little bit? That's okay. That's okay. 
that just will plunge you into deeper study. That's actually can be a blessing from God. All right. Now, let's get the sword back. We've, we've uh, I don't know if we won round one or if we lost. Let's call it a draw. But now, round two, <laughs> evidentialism, we actually use the Bible. In other words, we're looking at the Christian evidences. For example, manuscript evidence for the integrity of the Bible. Manuscript evidence for the integrity of the Bible. A manuscript is a copy. It's a fancy word for copy. Our in-house expert is Jason, Pastor Jason, who I think just did this in Sunday school not too long ago and talked about all of the manuscript support that we have for the Bible and how much correspondence there is between the various textual traditions and so forth. We'll talk about how many manuscripts there are. Now, somebody will say, obviously, well, I can write a book of fiction and have it get copied a lot too. <laughs> what is, the Bible is the most documented book in the world in terms of manuscript. Anybody know what's second? Anybody know what comes in second? What is it? <laughs> the dictionary? Pastor Jason? Yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're talking Homer here, which has about 800 copies, 800 manuscripts. How many manuscripts are there for the, for the New Testament? Anybody know? 6,000 almost. If you add in fragments, and we'll define these terms when we actually get into these subjects. If you add in fragments, you're up to 26,000 pieces of paper. This is the most copied text in the history of human language. And not only that, we have special Bibles, Pastor Jason and anyone who went to seminary had to learn this. We have the Greek New Testament with what's called a critical apparatus underneath the big fat line. And basically what that means is, if there is ever a variation, it will tell you in the footnote and point you to the manuscript and where it's located. Most, many of our manuscripts are in the British Museum. And I would argue that not all the manuscripts have been found yet. This is just what we have found. And you can calculate a percentage. How much deviation is there from manuscript to manuscript to manuscript? Is, do, do, does one manuscript say one thing and another say another? No. No. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm almost actually preaching on this now, and I don't. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, 1948, remember the shepherd boy threw, was thrown a rock and he heard a, a sh pottery shatter, discovered this cache of old documents. Inside the piece of, uh, inside the cave at Qumran, among many documents, was the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah, which dated to roughly the first century. Now, prior to that discovery, the earliest copy of Isaiah that we had was about, it was in the Middle Ages, 1200s, thereabouts, 1300s, uh, the Masoretic text of Isaiah. I mean, and so scholars put them side by side. We're going to get it. We're, gonna, we're finally going to get some differentials here. 
and they went through it. You know what kind of errors or differences they found? The kind of errors you would find if you spelled neighbor, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-U-R, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-R. Or the word color, C-O-L-O-U-R, C-O-L-O-R. It's almost like the difference between British and American. (laughs) But no substantial differences at all in the text of Isaiah. And the whole thing was there. There, It wasn't cut into three parts. How many of you have heard of 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, 3rd Isaiah? It's all together. All right. Okay, that's what, when we talk about Christian evidences, this is one of our subjects. Secondly, archaeological corroboration of biblical places and events. This is one of my favorites. There have been so many discoveries, archaeologically speaking, that corroborate places and events in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we'll spend a night or two going through just lists of what we know archaeologically. Uh, What have we found so far that you know about, that you're aware of? Just kind of shout it out. Okay. I've got a whole video on Jericho. We, We might show it. Jericho has been found. Uh, The the primary scholar to to deal with, and that was a guy by the name of Bryant Wood. Very good scholar. Jericho has been found. Yes, I heard another. Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, which contains, I think, all of the Bible, all of the books of the Old Testament except Esther. Is that correct? I think I have that right. Okay, yeah. So, again, we have got this corroboration, at least of Scripture. Now, what else? Anne? Herod's tomb. Herod's tomb. Uh, and let's go, let's go, <laughs> yeah, let's go beyond that. Let's go even beyond that. Let's talk about the bones of Caiaphas. Who's Caiaphas? One of the priests who put Jesus on trial. What else have we found? Yes, Yehoanan's heel bone, John's heel bone, dates from the first century. A guy who was obviously crucified, and there's an iron nail transfixing his right calcanean. And the reason the the nail is still in the bone is because the tip obviously hit a knot in the wood, the stipes or the vertical shaft of the cross, bent back, and they couldn't pull it out. So they just chopped off his foot with the wood on it, threw that in his bone box, his ossuary, and we found it. We'll talk about that. We'll, we could spend a whole night on that and how important a, a discovery of that, that. That was found in 1968 in a place called Givat HaMivtar in Israel near Mount Scopus. And Mount Scopus is just, I think, a little bit north of the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed in agony. Tremendous discovery. Any, anything else that you just, just off the top of your head? Yes, Diana? Yes, there is a stone with the name Pontius Pilatus, the Latin term for Pontius Pilate. Now, prior to that discovery, we had textual support in Josephus and Tacitus, some other places where, um, where, uh, uh, where Pilate was actually mentioned by name. Uh, Philo, not Tacitus, Philo. <laughs> um, two places where he was 
just mentioned by name. But then we found an, a stone. It was actually, this was found in the 1960s too. By the way, Tiberius Caesar's name was on there too. It was part of a step at a theater. So we now have archaeological proof for the existence of Rome. I think when you put all this evidence together, we could talk about Baruch, who was the secretary of Jeremiah. We could talk about David, King David. A, a, a coin has been found with his name on it. We now have archaeological proof for the existence of the characters in the Bible. Now, let me make this statement, and please understand I am casting no aspersions on any person. But I am just giving you a fact. When it comes to Mormon archaeology, you got a big fat zero. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that in a triumphalistic way. I'm just saying if I'm going to be a dispassionate investigator, if I'm going to put on my Sherlock Holmes hat and go after the trail, follow the trail, follow the clues, I, I'm not going to come to the conclusion the Book of Mormon has anything to offer me, at least not historically. The Bible, on the other hand, is rich when it comes to these kind of discoveries. All right. Uh, Sodom and, has Sodom been found? I think they're still searching for Sodom. Gomorrah is another matter. Um, by the way, if you're really interested in this subject, there's a, Zondervan put out, I, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, a Bible, an archaeological study Bible. I mean, you can actually go passage by passage. I've got it. Maybe I should have brought it. Um, in fact, Jason, you want to, do you know, you want to, do you mind? Um, you can read right through the Bible. And if there's any archaeological corroboration, you'll see an article, a sidebar, or a footnote talking about it. How many have, or you've heard about this Bible? Maybe you've had it, you've seen it, you've used it. Again, archaeology may not be your cup of tea. If, if you get deep into this, your career's in ruins, you know. <laughs> Sorry, that was pretty bad. <laughs> Although... The older you get, the more valuable you are. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. I'll just stop. <laughs> um, anyway, archaeological. I can't wait to get. I'm, you know, I'm going to wait till he gets back in here until I say this. I was kind and gracious enough to give Pastor Jason the moral argument, but when it comes to archaeology, I'm taking that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I waited until you got it. Here's the uh, archaeological study Bible. Look at how thick that is. Why do you think it's so thick? It's not big type. It's lots and lots of discoveries. And uh, the reason, I, kudos to the Israeli Department of Antiquities for this, quite honestly. If ever anything in Israel gets excavated, you're putting up a housing development or a shopping mall or whatever. If, if you're digging up uh, the, the ground and excavating and you find something that looks historically significant, the laws in Israel say that you must cease and desist at that point. You must terminate your operation. And then officials from the Israeli Department of Antiquities come to that site and they do a historical evaluation to see if it is historically significant and whether or not you... I, I would not want to be a developer in Israel. I mean, more projects have been kiboshed in Israel for this reason. But that's one of the reasons we have something like this. Because 
you just can't build wherever you want. So um, let me pass this around. You can kind of thumb through it if you'd like. Pictures, graphs, sidebars, and stuff. And by the way, all these resources we uh, refer to, don't, don't go buy them without looking at them first. Because you know, if we're recommending it and I have it or Pastor Jason has it in his library, you can thumb through and say, yeah, I think I'd be into this. I'd like this. This would be helpful. Okay, Because that's going to run you about 35 bucks there, 40 bucks. All right. Okay, next one on the list. Ancient prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Ancient prophecies fulfilled by Christ. You did know on Christmas Eve when we celebrated the birth of Jesus that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, that that didn't just happen in a vacuum. It didn't just happen one day and God said, hmm, I have an idea. I'll save the world. Plop, here's my son. No, the whole Old Testament is moving toward it. As we like to say sometimes, Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. The prophecies of Jesus speak to, I think, the divine character of Scripture. These prophecies about Jesus, where he would be born, how he would be born, what he would do, what he would be like, what he would accomplish. We're going to look at those prophecies. Are they legitimately interpreted? There's a lot of them. What are the chances that one person in the first century could just by chance fulfill all those prophecies with his one life? What's the mathematical probability of that? We'll calculate that, and we'll give some illustrations to try to get our, our minds around that number. Prophecies of Jesus. By the way, if you were a prophet in the Old Testament and you got something wrong, what was, what was your penalty? You dead. You didn't get patted on the head and said, go try again. Well, better luck next time. Get the antenna up and tune into the frequency better so you can hear God better. No, you were dead. That's a little bit better than Nostradamus. You've heard of him? Let's see, the 1700s, the French. I'm suspicious. Well, never mind. I won't finish that sentence. Uh, he was a French mathematician, philosopher, and he supposedly predicted the arrival of Hitler, but he was one letter off, H-I-S. L-E-R, and everybody, and we, we've got entire A&E programs about this, but the Bible we criticize. We're going to talk about that when we get to the ancient prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. And then the radical claims of Jesus Christ and their implications. The radical claims of Jesus and their implications Help me out here. What were some of the radical claims of Jesus? John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, what in the world? That's not even grammatically correct. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I, I'm just teasing whether you know that. Jesus in John 8, 58 takes the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, one of the, one of the names, and, and ascribes it to himself. And at that, they picked up stones and tried to kill him because he was committing blasphemy. Unless it were true, then it wasn't blasphemy. 
What are some other radical claims? June. John 14, 6. I, Jesus says I, and it's emphatic. The I is emphatic. I and I alone am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, who can we pick on? It's always fun to pick on Josh. I want you to stand up and say that. Just stand up there. Come on. You're game. You're a good sport. I know you are. Stand up and tell us that you're the only way to the Father. <laughs> All right, good. I don't want you to commit blasphemy in church, right? But, but you see the absurdity of, of the whole um, a guy's walking around claiming to be, well, he said on one occasion, I and the Father are one. Even Buddha didn't say that. Ah, Buddha didn't believe in God, actually. But anyway, that's another story. What else did Jesus say that was so radical? Yes, Karen. Your sins are forgiven. And the response of the people is what? Who can forgive sin but God alone? What are you doing making yourself equal with God? This got so bad, his own family, his own family. Come on, let's go. Get out of here. Come on. Right? You remember that? Mark's gospel. Anything else come to mind? The Beatitudes. Everything's upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah, he's, he's up, up is down and in is out and black is white. And he, t- You know what that tells me? If Jesus is telling the truth, that tells me this world's upside down. He's come to set it right. <laughs> right? There's another hand. Yeah, June? Yes. Yeah, I think it's Luke chapter 4. He's in the synagogue. He opens the scroll and he goes to the place in Isaiah where where he's talking about uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and so forth. He rolls back up the scroll. All the eyes of everybody in the synagogue. Do I have that right? Is it Luke 3, 4? And he says, today in your hearing, the scripture is fulfilled. In other words, I am what Isaiah was talking about. Jan, you want to jump in there? Yeah, uh, John 11. I, listen to that. Now, just listen to, try to think of your boss at work saying this. All right, we, you know, Josh isn't brave enough to do this. <laughs> Nor should he be. This is blasphemy. But think of your boss or your spouse Or somebody in the government, they come close sometimes. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then Jesus in that passage puts the ball in your court and he says, do you believe? Then he goes and raises Lazarus. Just just to be sure. Yeah, I wasn't blowing smoke. Okay. Yeah, Carolyn. I mean, it goes on and on here, doesn't it? But I say. Yes. 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 What, yeah, what they and how they perverted it. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have heard that it was said... 
thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if any man has looked upon a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, he is claiming an authority equal to the Scripture and greater than rabbinic interpretation of the Scripture. Any others? I mean, just, this is kind of fun, really. Josh? Yeah. John 18 is rich. John 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And, uh, and, and Jesus isn't saying anything. And, and Pilate's really irritated. You want to make somebody mad? <laughs> Don't respond to their balderdash. <laughs> Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or set you free? And Jesus' response, you have no power over me except it be given from above. And then he goes on to say, you're right in saying that I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would fight. My kingdom is from another place. And then he goes on to say this, all on the side of truth, listen to me. I want you to hear that. Because we're living in an age that, number one, doesn't really believe in truth. And anyone who claims that they have it, they're bigots, they're, they're whatever, I mean, the list of adjectives is endless. All who are on the side of truth, listen to me. What was Pilate's response to that? What is truth? truth? Pilate was a good postmodern. Okay, you see, so when we get to, we're going to look at these claims. How, how, and, and their implications. What are the implications of these statements? Um, you've heard of the trilemma? A man who said these kinds of things, he's either a liar. In other words, he knows he's not these things. He's just saying that he is. Or he's a lunatic. He's delusional, like his family thought at one point. He's just, he drank the Kool-Aid, okay? Or he's Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or, or the Lord. And we're going to look at the trilemma the implications of these things that Jesus said. All right. A- any more on that? You see what that one's all about? This, this is part of the Christian evidence. See, see how we're using the Bible now. We're, we're not talking about uh, protoplasm and um, amino acids and ontological this and that. We're actually talking about Scripture, okay? And this is a, a little bit closer to where we live. All right. Next. The evidence for Jesus' miracles and resurrection. The evidence for Jesus' miracles and resurrection. Have you noticed, and this is really our subject tonight, we'll at least get it started, I don't know that we can finish it, but underneath evidentialism is a supernatural worldview. Now, we've been at this long enough. Somebody help me out here. What is a supernatural worldview as opposed to a natural worldview? We've talked about naturalism and supernaturalism. What is naturalism? Let's start there. What is naturalism? 
It's got an ISM on it. That means it's a philosophy. It's an idea. It's a theory. It's a concept. What is it? What does naturalism say? Okay. Everything can be explained naturally. We may not know yet where the universe came from, but someday we'll know where it came from, and it will be a natural explanation, not a supernatural explanation involving some deity. By the way, I, Drew had this on in the background last night. It was, just, it was hilarious. I, I, it captivated me so much, I put it on my Facebook page. Um, what was the context? CP3O or C3PO or what, what, you know, the, the gold guy. He, he's, being, he's in a certain village getting worshipped. They think he's a god, right? And help me out here, Drew. It was, uh, uh, and everybody wants to know uh, what they're saying or how to, what, take them out or, um, or, or actually to pretend like he's a god and, and command them to do things so that they don't get harmed. Uh, what episode was this? Episode six. Episode six, all right. And, and C-3PO or C-P-3O or the gold guy says, it's not part of my programming to impersonate a deity. <laughs> I said, that's half our problem right there. <laughs> it's not my program programming to impersonate a deity. Anyway, naturalism. Other, other thoughts that stir into naturalism. What else is involved? I mean, that, that's pretty much, that's the guts of it. Any, any other thoughts on naturalism? <laughs> when you die, you're worm food. Your toes are turned upward, you turn yellow, and that's it. There's no life beyond the grave. The grave gets the last word. Now, measure that against what Jesus said. The time is coming, and now is, when the dead who are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall come forth and live. Do we have a worldview clash here? I think so. <laughs> who are you going to side with? The Harvard prof with a goatee, or the one who himself rose from the dead? And that is at issue here, because the resurrection is the quintessential miracle. But here's my point. Foundational to all of evidentialism is this supernatural worldview. There is a God. He exists. And as opposed to deism, where God just is, he made the world, threw it into operation, and then walked away from it and is not involved in it anymore. That's deism. Some, not all, of our founders of this country were deists. Theism... Specifically, Christian theism says, no, this God made the world and he's actively involved in it. Or to borrow the phrase from, uh, that I talked about on Christmas Eve, we're the visited planet. So right at the outset, we got to get a handle on this thing called miracle. Don't you think? Would you, can you agree that that's an important thing to talk about, whether we get it all in tonight or not. By the way, the rest of this, you can look at the defensive and the type of objections. You've heard objections. We're going to handle some of the, the common objections eventually. But here's where we are now. 
in our study. If you're just joining us, it's an exciting time to, to, to start because we're going to look at the Bible. We're not talking about amino acids anymore. We're not <laughs> talking about, you know, the cosmological constants. We're going to crack the book. We're going to look at... But even before that, we've got to take a look at this thing called miracle because wouldn't you agree that's important to the Christian worldview? Turn the page. Let's talk about this a little bit. Name some miracles that are cited in the Old Testament. Just pop them off. Karen? Uh, Yeah, the the holding up the bronze snake. Look and you will be healed. Right? Jesus actually quotes that story in John chapter 3 when he talks about you must be born again. Yes. What else? The donkey that talked. You know, that's just too easy. I'm not, I'm just going to move on, okay? (laughs) Yeah, Karen? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And they come out unharmed. Because how many were in there? Four. And that fourth one looked like a son of man. Wow. Ah, it's just kid stuff. That's flannel graph for Sunday school. You know, we found kilns that actually built into the side of the earth that actually matched the description of what we have in Daniel. Others. Yes, Old Testament miracles. Parting the Red Sea. I mean, that's, that, that's like at the top of the list. The Exodus, for sure. Does water do that? If I could make water do that, I would have won every race in college and high school. <laughs> I was at Kutztown University, Keystone Pool, swimming today. And I would love to have, you know, get my workout in just by walking up and down the lane rather than swimming. Yesterday, <laughs> Rebecca Kruger, who goes to our church, was there. She was in the lane next to me. I didn't know it until, you know, and all of a sudden she pops up. I hate this. She's all smiles. Hi, Pastor Tim. I'm like grunting. When I do a workout, I grunt. Women, have you ever seen those Pilates videos? I mean, that's just, that irritates me so much. Because I'm, I'm trying to do it with them. I'm, uh, uh, I'm sweating like a pig. I hate how I look and smell. And they're all, you know. And, and it reminded me, Rebecca said, hi, Pastor Tim. I was like, hi, you know. I always get caught up on my prayer life when I'm swimming. My prayer is basically, oh, God, help. (laughs) Anyway, all that to say this. The the, the pool never parted for me. Water doesn't do that. That's a miracle, wouldn't you say? What else? Any other? I mean, that's that's the top of the list, obviously. Yeah. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Boy, you, you know the story of Elijah, the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and the fire coming down, consuming the fat sacrifices after, he, after they put water on it. Some little kid wondered why, why the water is making gravy. That's what he's doing. Yeah, that's a miracle, obviously. Yeah. The Tower of Babel. God says, let us 
plural, go down and confuse the language lest they... Whatever's going on there, you got this confusion of language, and that's really bizarre. But I, I take Acts chapter 2 to be a reversal of that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but Acts chapter 2, when everyone hears in their neat kind of connection, huh? Which is a nice segue to the next, next question. Name some miracles in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. <laughs> what else? Jesus turned water into wine. How do you do that? He did it. And, and, and it wasn't just a bottle. When you calculate how many gallons it was, I think it's John chapter 2 there, and there have been found stone jars. This is the archaeological point. Stone jars that would hold this amount. He turned water into wine. My favorite line in all of literature, some of you heard me say this before, but my favorite line in all of literature comes from a poet by the name of Alexander Pope. His description of that miracle is as follows. The conscious water saw its master and blushed. Isn't that beautiful? That's art, but back to the miracle. How do you change water into wine? I know some Christians who think we should change wine into water. <laughs> that's, we're not going there tonight. Uh, but anyway, um, that's a miracle. Yeah, what else? Diana? Jesus walked on water. And the skeptic says it was ice. He just found the ice chunks and he went a-walking. In other words... The disciples were so stupid, they were amazed that, that Jesus could find the ice. That's kind of crazy. What else? Ann? The fish. The, yeah, well, there's a couple involving fish. Which one do you have in mind? The multiplication? Of, <laughs> there's a miracle catch of fish, and then there's the multiplication of fish. Or, multiplication. multiplication, okay. The, uh, the five loaves and the two. I always want to say fishes there. And I only say that in church. I think the King James says fishes, but, but you know, five loaves, two fish, and he multiplies, feeds, the, he actually does that twice. Yeah, what, yes. Calming the storm, peace be still. Wonder what kind of trick that was. Raising Lazarus, John 11. Paul, okay, Paul and the snakes, Paul and just about everything. Yes, June. Yes, the widow of Nain has a son who's actually the funeral procession is in progress. He's, he's being carried on the funeral pyre, and Jesus interrupts the funeral. Actually, any time Jesus came across a funeral, he interrupted it. I just get... <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, and and he, raises, he raises the child, uh, raises the son to life says to the little girl, Jairus' daughter, leader at the synagogue, and the synagogue was on the outs with Jesus, and yet Jesus went to the home of Jairus, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. And then curiously says, give her something to eat. I've always wondered about that. Could not the, the, the Savior who raised her to life put a Pop-Tart in her stomach? Come on. But I think there's a theological reason for that. What else? Liz? Yes. 
When it comes to the healing miracles of Jesus, and if you add in the exorcisms, there's 26 of them. 26 in the New Testament. That, that's a lot. We've got a book, both Old Testament and New Testament, filled with miracles. Now, what do you think is the preeminent miracle of the Bible without which Christianity is not and cannot be true? The resurrection. I heard in unison. <laughs> the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Would you, would you count that as a miracle? Yeah. Actually, Paul makes this argument in the entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He makes the argument, if Christ is not raised, we've got no Christianity. That's why this is important. And one, as Pastor Jason and I, we don't always know exactly where we're going. We, we have a general idea, but we know this. One thing that we are going to hit very, very hard and give quizzes on is how do you defend the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? When you get in discussions and debates with unbelievers about how old is the earth, about this alleged contradiction in Second Chronicles, about where Cain got his wife, about all of those are legitimate lines of inquiry, but, you know, it all comes down to this. Sir... Was Jesus risen from the dead? Was Jesus raised from the dead on that first Easter Sunday? It all boils down to that. If, if we got that, if we can defend that, if we can believe that, if we can substantiate that, that in my mind is game, set, and match. And that's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection from, of Jesus from the dead. And as happened in my family, I'm sure it did in yours over Christmas, you get into some of these discussions. One of, the, one of your techniques, it's the ace really. The fundamental question here is, was Jesus risen from the dead? Let's talk about the evidence for that. Because there's a lot of it. And we're going to hit this one really, really hard. Because it is game, set, and match. Do you see why? If a man dies and rises again in fulfillment of his own predictions, that would tend to validate everything else he said about himself. Being the way to the Father. Being the only hope for humanity. Are you with me on that? Yeah, I mean, we're just sort of topically introducing this. But that's, we're going to hit that. Tests, quizzes, you're each going to have to come up and give a presentation. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we won't do it. We should. This is part of your discipleship as a Christian. To be able to give a cogent, understandable, and hopefully persuasive argument for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
because that is game, set, and match right there. Or another way to say it, Billy Graham said, said it this way. <laughs> he was talking about Genesis 1-1. He said, give me Genesis 1-1. I don't have a problem with anything else in the Bible. In the beginning, God. I think he's right. So, if you're just starting now, it's kind of an exciting time to start. Um, evidentialism. Now, do you think miracles still happen today? Anne's hand went right up. You had one. All right. Okay. A bloody miracle. Didn't know you were from England. <laughs> Any, anybody else? Any thought? You, you believe miracles still happen? I don't, that show of hands thing, I, I, I'm a little reluctant to do that because if you're not sure, then you get singled out and you, get, you feel targeted. And, and that's not what this is about. Um, but if you're willing to expose yourself with this question, just be careful. Anybody, you believe miracles happen today? Okay, Jeanette? Medical miracles all the time. Okay. Excellent. Anyone else? Yvonne? From start to finish, our salvation is a miracle. Jesus was getting at that in John chapter 3. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say our, our salvation, his resurrection, his incarnation when he became one of us. One of the things, I, and I didn't get into this Christmas Eve, but one of the things I've been just playing with in my mind is this truth. Why did Jesus have to come to earth? Why couldn't he just sit on his throne in heaven and say, you're all forgiven? Because it, we, it certainly helped to see him. But, but I started thinking along these lines. He couldn't die in heaven. He had to come to earth where death is. Anyway, maybe that's next year's thought. But um, anybody else? Miracles? Diana? Yeah, the odds of it ever... When you look at everything that has to go right, the fact that it ever goes right, <laughs> like, wow. Okay? I, I, and I was... Let, let me say I'm two-thirds of the way with you on that one because I saw the birth of my kids. <sighs> they look a lot better now than they did when they came out, let me tell you. <laughs> anyway... Did I tell you, do you mind me telling this? <laughs> I, see, they're home for break, and it's, <laughs> I have to be conscious. <laughs> Some of you already heard this. Bethany's very first act on the planet was to pee on the doctor. <laughs> and when we got his bill, we were so glad she did. <laughs> anyway, thank you, dear. Um, how would you define miracle, by the way? We've been using this word. We've been talking about it. But 
What is it? What is a miracle? And Okay, something supernatural. Can't explain it. Okay. Um, and again, I'm not going to do devil's advocate tonight, but that you often hear that as an explanation. You can't explain it. But we can't explain the birth of a baby. I'm talking about myself. Oh, your own? Okay. What else? What other elements that you would include in a definition of miracle? Yeah, Karen. Okay, there, there is a, as Ann said, there's a supernatural component to it. I mean, let's face it, we, we talked about walking between the water. <laughs> I also tried walking on the water as a swimmer. That didn't work either. <laughs> that, let's back up even further. Can we, can we say, at least at the outset, it's uncommon? I mean, you don't see people walking on water every day fire falling from heaven like on Mount Carmel every day. All right. Other thoughts? Yeah. Something beyond our control. Something beyond our control? Okay. In other words, God was doing this. Even if Moses is holding the staff and throws it down and it eats Pharaoh's, you know it was God who did it, not Moses. So God's part of this. God's activity which precludes deism, doesn't it? A God who exists but isn't involved. Josh? Uh, I have a question because um, you correct me if I'm wrong. This is, uh, you said that it's uncommon. Would you say that breathing is a miracle because there's nothing that, yes, we have some medical technology to help us breathe. Yeah. I, your question's excellent. It, it's really excellent. The, theologians actually wrestle. The reason I'm throwing this out, because <laughs> I don't have one to give you. <laughs> theologians wrestle with exactly what you're getting at. Um, we would say, as Christians, every breath we take is borrowed breath. We've often made the statement that uh, you can't even be a good atheist without God's help. You can't shake a fist in his face that he didn't give you. Now, that assumes our worldview is correct, right? Now, there are, is breathing a miracle? That goes to the heart of, of the definition of what does the Bible mean when it uses the word miracle or its associated terms sign, wonder, and the, there's always an effect that goes with it. And here's why I would say I'm not sure I'd call breathing a miracle, except in the larger sense that your existence in God's image is a miracle. There's always an amazement that follows a miracle. People stand around. The Greek word is thaumadzo, and it's a word that you have to open your mouth three times to say. In other words, it, something just happened that caused you to go, Nurses in the neonatal unit, they see births all the time. And they may get connected to a patient. And, and yes, I agree that birth is a, is a miracle in, in a broader sense because life is a miracle. Remember back when we were talking about the teleological argument? If, we wanna, if there's any merit to the teleological argument, then we have to say all life is supernatural in that sense because it came from the hand of God. What we're talking about here 
is stuff that doesn't necessarily happen every day, at least the stuff in the Bible. I've done, I, I've got a file drawer. It's about this long, about this long now of, of funerals, funerals that I've done for people. They're still in the ground, folks. Where's their resurrection? And as I've said, I can't walk on water or part the pool. When we read of miracles in the Bible, is it credible? He opened the eyes of a man born blind. By the way, just to throw this in for free, you're not paying for this. I just think it's fun to point out. In these 26 healing miracles, Jesus did it almost, he, he almost never did it the same way. I, 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 there is some overlap, but I think it's kind of neat how, how he does it. He does it differently. Any, any thoughts as to why? Josh, we will get back to your question. I, I'm just kind of put it on hold for a second because it's a it's it's a it's an excellent question, Karen. Okay. Okay, you can't limit him to a technique. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. So if he's showing you that he's doing these things in so many different ways. If he, if he does 26 healing miracles or exorcisms, and, and, and most of the time they're done in different ways, which method are you going to copy? <laughs> Do you think the conclusion we're to make by that is it's not about a method, it's about a man? Do you see where I'm going with this? Can you imagine... Three people healed of blindness in the New Testament. One, on one occasion, Jesus spit in his eye. Love that. Another occasion, he actually makes clay. and It's almost like he fashions eyeballs and sticks them in. Another occasion, he just speaks the word. <laughs> I... If Jesus had been an American, if that had happened in America, you know what would have happened? We'd have three denominations right there to start. You're not really healed of blindness unless Jesus spits in your face. We are the spitites. Jesus, no, 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 no. You're not really healed. You're not really healed of blindness unless Jesus puts mud in your eye. We are the Muddites. Oh, no, says group number three. You don't have it right. You're not really healed of blindness unless Jesus spoke the word. We are the Wordites. Do you see why Jesus did? I mean, we laugh, but do you, you see why Jesus? It's not about the technique. It's about, it's about the Messiah, Jesus He's the one. And he allows himself, he doesn't allow himself to be 
duplicated in that sense. You see what I mean? Are you with me on that? But let's face it, 26 of those in the New Testament, you take them out, you don't have much New Testament. I want to start, we're not going to finish, I want to start an essay um, that you see here. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Miracles. He wrote a lot of stuff. Gosh, I just, I just want, I, I've often said we should dig him up. <laughs> Gross thought, though it may be. It just take whatever DNA is left and just inject it in my own brain. He's, he wrote a book called Miracles. Uh, let me at least get this essay started. You can take it home and read it. We'll, we're going to have to have a part two on miracles, and we'll, we'll actually go more to Josh's question next time because it's very, very important. And it actually has practical value as we pray for the sick. If your baby's not breathing and you pray and the baby starts breathing, you're going to say, miracle, breathing's a miracle. So I want to at least get this started. And you can follow along. You can take this home and finish it. Um, but can we agree when it comes to evidentialism, miracles are essential. One of the ways that Christians have provided evidence for their faith is by claiming the reality of miracles, as some of you just did. By looking at prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ, or the healing miracles and nature miracles of Jesus, or the resurrection itself, believers have tried to show that there's a convergence of signs and wonders all pointing to Jesus as the Son of God. Even the enemies of Jesus couldn't deny his power. But to whom did they ascribe that power? It's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that you're driving out demons. That was their argument. However, since the Enlightenment period, that's a, that's a time in history not too terribly long ago, 16, 1700s and 1800s, there's been a strong rejection of miracles by modernists or naturalists, let's call them, so that it has become almost necessary for believers to apologize for the introduction of miracles rather than using them for evidence. Jesus walked on the water. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's just kind of a metaphorical way of saying he's, I don't know. And there have been plenty of theologians down through the ages, preachers down through the ages who have sort of they get to these miracles and they sort of apologize and there's some spiritual meaning to them. Not a historical reality, but a spiritual meaning. That way they can retain some... Well, actually, I go on to say this. Um, perhaps this skepticism is waning now that modernism is no longer in vogue. It's given way to postmodernism. Hey, you can believe in angels today, can't you? The power of crystals. Life beyond. We've got TV shows with people contacting, you know, those who've crossed over. I mean, that's, that's a supernatural worldview. It's not a Christian one, but it's supernatural, isn't it? Uh, let's play this game just for a second. I'm thinking of a, a lady, her name starts with M, Mabel, Mary, Martha, 
um, and, and she's, I'm seeing white, a lot of white. She, uh, I'm thinking a white, white lace occasion, like a wedding or a, do you know what I'm talking about? You've seen this stuff? That's, that's a supernatural worldview. That's not a naturalistic worldview. Um, I think I just offended a few people. I, I hope you don't watch that stuff. Anyway, um, but, but this, this enlightenment has given way to postmodern, where it's okay to believe in the supernatural unless you're one of those rabid atheists like Denton and, and Dawkins and um, Hawking. And uh, I, I did it again, didn't I? I did it. <laughs> Hitchens. Anyway, on, on with this. Um, regardless of, of where people are on that supernatural, natural question today, C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, sought to clear the ground so that miracles could again be discussed. One of the factors that brought Lewis to public attention, notice, we talk, I quote Lewis at least once or twice a month, but there was a time when he was very obscure and unknown. One of the factors that brought him to public attention was his unblushing affirmation of the supernatural. In other words, God, demons, miracles, and everything else we read in Scripture. But... How could a sophisticated Oxford professor believe such things in the 20th century? When his face appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1947, it read this, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, his heresy, Christianity. Isn't that interesting? 1947. They're calling C.S. Lewis a heretic. Why? Because he believes the Bible. Nobody believes that anymore. What made Lewis such a secular heretic? Well, he rejected the fashion of the day to lower the bar of belief. Minimizing the things you really need to embrace to be a Christian. German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher had reinterpreted the faith so that it could be quite palatable to its cultured despisers. Rather than confront their objections, he gave ground so that there would be no obstacles such as miracles to get in, a way, in the way. This is a central tenet of liberal Christianity even today. At best, miracles are spiritualized, not understood historically. In other words, and by the way, there's been a lot of theologians, Boltmann comes to mind. It's a process called demythologizing. In other words, we need to take the Bible and demythologize it. And what you're left with is a nice, happy way to live, an ethic for your life. It's not real. Wow, she said with passion. <laughs> Amen. But I've got to back that up with sound logic, persuasive reasoning, and scripture. That's what a miracle is. If you can actually get somebody to believe this, yes, that is a miracle. Yeah, amen. I would, I would agree with you. For you to be sitting here as a believer, in my worldview, that you're... <laughs> that kind of came out wrong, didn't it? <laughs> if God saved Anne, <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> Gosh, I'm sorry. Um, did you know that Thomas Jefferson actually took a scissors to the Bible and cut the supernatural parts out of it? N now, not physically took it. 
but he, you know, redlined it. This can stay, this can go. The Jesus Seminar does that today, and they vote. The probability that Jesus said this statement is, you know, and they put different color beads in the tube and, you know, whatever the resulting color is. I mean, this is an embarrassment. I mean, come on. Let me, let me ask one question. Yeah. Well, and that's the rub right there. And right there is a rub because every one of you who said I had a miracle, they would say there's another explanation besides God for that event. I'm glad I'm on your side. <laughs> the demythologizing, why? Because I'm concerned about people. I want them to love my Jesus. And so I take, I take away the parts of the Bible that they might have a problem with. Okay, so on Christmas Eve, when there's 827 people here, let's not talk about angels. Not everybody believes in angels. Let's not talk about a virgin birth, because that doesn't happen every day. Look, you can't talk about Christmas except in, in the context of miracle. And, and I'm with Paul. I'm with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen from the dead, go home. We've got nothing. We've got no message. We've got no hope. Return all the tithes and offerings. Stay home and watch football on Sunday. And I mean that. If the Eagles are playing. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Hang, hang in there, Ann. She's, she's one of those combative apologists. <laughs> we need to put you against Hitchens. <laughs> we'll get there. Lewis asked, why are miracles rejected without further consideration? And so he took on that vital question, not so much by arguing for particular miracles per se, but by critiquing naturalism, which said, in effect, meant that miracles were impossible or so improbable that they could never be accepted. That was his approach in miracles. He went on the offensive. <laughs> he said, naturalism can't explain everything. And let me summarize his argument, and then you can read further how he responds in this little essay I've got here, and we'll pick it up next time because our time's almost gone tonight. Naturalism is like a closed box. We are all here by chance. You're just, you know, you're protoplasm up from the sea. That's it. That's all you are. You're a collection of chemicals. That's all you are. You have no destiny. When you're dead, you're dead, etc., etc. Lewis basically said this, if... If we are all here by chance, randomness, no purpose, no design whatsoever, then how in the world can we trust our thoughts when we ourselves came from chance? What legitimacy does any thought I have have 
if I am myself an accident? Now, I, I, that's a serious reduction of his argument. Um, but we're out of time, as always. <laughs> you see, if you, I know how to make some of you believe in miracles. Just get done on time some night, right? That, that'll, <laughs> that'll do it. Um, hey, we're, we're starting evidentialism. In my, in my view, I'll let Pastor Jason speak for himself. In my view, it's probably the most exciting part of Christian apologetics. So we're going to go one by one. We're going to deal with this issue of miracles, try to get that off the table. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the archaeological evidence, the manuscript evidence, um, the evidence for the claims of Jesus, fulfilled prophecies, and so forth. Okay, so it's where we've been and where we're headed. Questions? Yes? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'll, I'd be happy to talk to her on May 22nd. <laughs> um, there is a, if you're really into this sort of thing, there is a website with every failed prediction of the return of Christ. It, it'll take you a long time to load because the page is so long. Um, I wish we'd stop playing this. It, if the broader question is, hey, what about false miracles? Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of claim to miracle that is not miracle. I, I have no, I, I fully concede that. Yes. Um, what do I think about it? Jesus said, only the Father knows when the Son will return. And so I can dismiss carte blanche, out of hand, any claim that anybody makes, including myself, that Jesus is coming back on a certain date. In fact, if I were God, and it's quite obvious I'm not, but if I were God and somebody just happened to predict the day of Jesus' return, I would change it just because I said nobody knew. I, I don't know if that's, a, I don't mean to trivialize the question. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what? We ought to, we ought to, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. That book's half price now. Have a great week, guys. God bless. We'll see you.